We are live. Well, good morning to everyone who is watching through the screen and good morning to everyone in the room. Uh, we're Dan and Sophie Plagerson. We get the joy of uh, talking to you and sharing from the Bible on the topic of redeeming time, which is a topic we've talked lots about, as you can imagine. And I promise not to waste your time this morning, all puns intended, and I promise that because there's two of us, we won't be twice as long. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is this pretty small book in the middle of the Bible, and it's known as wisdom literature. So we're kind of speaking to the, the series title, which is Wisdom for a World that Refuses to Make Sense. And let me start by asking, so what, has, what have you found in Ecclesiastes so far? So I've loved this book, um, a believing Israelite who wrestles with questions of meaning, and um, it really validates this search um, for significance. And as someone who asks lots of questions, I appreciate that. And I think probably it's something we've been wrestling with a lot over the last year, just as um, Corona has changed where we're allowed to go, who we're allowed to see. The questions tend to pop up again in different ways. What is important in life? How do I make it count for something? One thing I've been reflecting on is that Ecclesiastes shows us that the journey to find truth requires humility. Even with the best resources, we're led to conclude that we don't have all the answers. I've been struck how the search for meaning involves both our heads and our hearts. And Ecclesiastes is both intellectual, but also is deeply emotional and experiential. And for those who are not followers of Christ, uh, but are on a search for truth, this book really validates your journey. And, uh, but there's also a sober call that truth is revealed when we're willing to embrace its implications. So I think this is a, really a book that is relevant to everyone. There's a genuine and open invitation to journey together, whether you're agnostic, atheist, or God-fearing, and uh, whether we're pessimistic or optimistic. It challenges us to be deeply honest and to look for answers that will last forever. So I think it's very encouraging. I agree. Last week we took a look at Ecclesiastes 2, and the writer told us about the life of Solomon, and Solomon had everything. He had unlimited wealth and resources, unlimited opportunities, unlimited relationships. But the writer concludes that even with this, it led to very little lasting joy. And this week we're jumping into Ecclesiastes 3, where we kind of see the, the writer bumping his philosophical head up against time. Now, we as humans have this complex relationship with time. You know, the young want to be older, the old want to be younger. Everyone wants to be 20 apart from the 20-year-olds. We all have this uh, kind of so many uh, idioms and expressions around time and our experience of it. You know, we talk about time flying. We talk about time standing still. And in today's chapter, of Ecclesiastes, the writer becomes kind of very aware of two things. One, he is not in control of time. And secondly, ultimately, he doesn't know what happens after his final day. But let's read the chapter. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, 
A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That's, I love the uh, biblical social distancing in that verse. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has a worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Sorry, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. That this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, what God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is a big chapter, and we are going to approach it by answering three questions. Quite simple. What is the writer trying to tell us about who we are and how we experience life? What does the writer tell us about God? And then ultimately, what difference can Jesus make? And, and these are kind of three great questions to you, you can ask when you're reading the Bible, when you're studying it on your own at home. But we'll jump in. Question number one. So what does the writer want us to learn about life? Well, the, the picture he paints is that life is confusing. Um, there's a whole mix of good and bad seasons. It doesn't say how long they last. They could be short or long. Um, but sometimes life is great and sometimes life really sucks. And in this beautiful poem, the chapter paints a picture of the tapestry that life is, from the beginning of life, from birth to the end, and everything that's in between. It includes emotions, friendship, celebrations, relationships, national events, war and peace, and um, everything else. Two themes particularly emerge. The first is that our life is time-bound. Ultimately, the big reality is that we are mortal. The writer has a limited number of years and one day will die, says in verse 19 to 21. Death is the great interrupter. It introduces finality and destruction into our existence. Having invited all of us onto his journey of discovery, Ecclesiastes then takes all of us to this cliff edge, um, forcing us to admit that we don't have a solution to death. 
Our reactions to death can vary. There's the famous quote by Woody Allen, um, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, and the, the honesty of this passage strips away our false hope of being able to evade death. And that's a deception that started right from Genesis when the serpent promised to Adam and Eve, you will not die, you will be like God. And I think that that kind of secret hope sometimes still stays with us. So that's the first theme, that our life is time-bound. The second is that we have only limited control. Death also challenges our sense of control. It challenges the reassuring set of beliefs that we weave around ourselves as a protective cocoon. The writer knows that he has some limited control over life, but that he's still subject to the seasons. Only God has ultimate control. And this draws on themes from Genesis 1, where God gave us control and stewardship um, over the earth. Um, but in Genesis 3, where people try to replace God and take ultimate control. And we can still relate to this, this kind of wrestle um, for more control, where, and where people try to resist their lack of control. So this is the life we know, that humans are finite and have limited control over time um, and over life. So then to question number two, what do we learn about God from this passage? And the first thing we learn is that God is eternal. In verse 11, it talks about him being God from beginning to end. And God being eternal means that he exists before time and he'll exist after time. A.W. Tozer says that God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He's already lived all our tomorrows as he's lived all our yesterdays. It is meant to be mind-blowing. We're not meant to get too much of God's eternity into our heads because it's meant to blow our minds. It means that we, uh, can, ex we can only experience kind of this moment of time. We can reflect on the past, we can imagine the future, but our reality is this present time. But God is equally attentive over the past, the present, and the future. He, he's God over every part of it. He's, he's not just present, but he's sovereign, he's powerful, and he's fully in control. So he exists before everything. We read in Genesis 1.1, it starts with the four words, in the beginning God. And then we go to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation and Jesus declares he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. So God is before and he is after. Secondly, God has unlimited control. He is sovereign like a king over all things. It says this in verse 15. And like a king, uh, he has the power to act. He has authority over everything. God is sovereign over time. He's sovereign over the seasons, we heard in verses 1 to 8. You know, he gives us these seasons. And uh, Jesus echoes these words in Acts 1-7, where he says, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So God the Father has authority over the times and over the seasons. Verse 11, it, this is one of my favorite verses. It says that he makes all things beautiful in his time. That God brings things to fruition. He makes them kind of beautifully fitting in his time. It's not that everything is going to be intrinsically or have an exterior of beauty to our eye. But in its time, God brings everything and makes everything perfect. This means that God holds everything together in his perfect timing, like a symphony orchestra with a conductor at the front. He tells the different groups of instruments when to play and when to stop. And, and 
God uh, holds all of time together. God's sovereign over the moment, he's sovereign over the beginning, he's sovereign over the end, and we saw in verse 14 that what he does is permanent and enduring. The writer, perhaps with a little bit of despair, acknowledges that his work is toil. And you know, we know that um, work matters a bit, but ultimately, we don't know if it's gonna last. It probably won't endure. While what God does is creates permanence. And this is because of his power. This is because of who he is. In uh, Malachi 3.6, he says, I, Yahweh, do not change. He's the unchangeable God. He's the permanent God who always has been and always will be and is fully in control. He's eternal and in control from the beginning to the end and at every point in the middle. So we see this gap emerging, us on the one side, our experience of life and the character of God's on the other, between time and eternity, between humanity's limited control and God's ultimate control. And as we look honestly at our own condition, we see that we are limited, that we can't reach God by our own effort. We can't cross this divide or replace God. Often, at least in our culture and society, people do try to resolve this, cap, this gap by simply taking God out of the picture. And one then needs to make sense of life within the confines of our humanity, with death as the final conclusion. And as a result, we see many efforts around us to kind of carve out more time uh, and to try and um, create more control to gain more control. Ecclesiastes does consider these options, but doesn't stop there. More time isn't an ultimate answer, and more control isn't the ultimate answer either. We surely need more. And the chapter of Ecclesiastes gives three clues as to how um, mortal people and an immortal God can be connected. The first is our desire and need for justice. And he this really comes out, well, if God is sovereign, how about all the bad stuff? How about the injustice? And those are questions that he wrestles with, and I think many of us do as well. But he identifies God as the ultimate judge um, and the source of justice, which is beyond us. And that will be a theme that's developed more in the coming weeks um, in the, the following chapters. Another major hint that God is there and that we can reach out to him, which the writer points out, is that he has placed eternity in our hearts. That's in, in verse 11. We know death is coming, but we do have this desire for more. There's a, it comes in different ways, but it can be a kind of a sense of hunger for something that death can't take away, a desire for immortality. The third clue is our ability to worship. Um, in verse 14, the writer shows that our limits are perhaps a blessing. When we humbly recognize that we are finite and not fully in control, this can lead us to worship the one who is infinite and the one who is in complete control. So Ecclesiastes gives us the beginning of answers in our search for meaning, but our hearts still yearn for more. We still find we can't reach God by our own efforts. So then we ask the question, Jesus make. Because the writer of Ecclesiastes, at the time of his writing, Jesus hadn't walked the earth. And you've probably heard it said a few times from, uh, from here that the Old Testament kind of anticipates and looks towards Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And then the New Testament works out what that means. So with the cross central. And so we want to interpret the whole of Scripture uh, within itself to get a complete picture. So 
So where we see the writer was trying to reach God and was musing uh, about the limit of his days, we see that Jesus steps down to us, that Jesus bridges the gap. Jesus steps into time. He leaves eternity and steps into time. Galatians 4.4 says that, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So he arrives perfectly on time. God sovereignly acts and sends Jesus, stepping in from eternity. And this is Jesus, the author, who steps into the story. This is uh, Jesus kind of visiting the world that he has created, whose image is already on each one of us. And then, through his sinless life, his death on the cross and resurrection, he then defeats death. He declares the end of the end. 2 Timothy 1.10 talks about our saviour Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life, to light through the gospel. I love that. He abolishes death. It's like it's smashed to smithereens. The writer wasn't certain but now Jesus can bring us certainty that we can live after we die. Number three, Jesus offers us eternal life. This is a gift that's available to each one of us. 1 John 2.7 says that the world and its desires will pass away. And the writer of Ecclesiastes experienced something of that. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so these three things uh, that Jesus brings about utterly transforms our relationship with time. That he stepped into time, that he defeated death, and that he offers us eternal life. And so we can now live completely differently. We can live and redeem time. We can live uh, firstly by enjoying the present, yet living for eternity. And there's a bit of tension between the two. Because you've probably heard the phrase carpe diem, seize the day. There's a sense of, you know, wanting to make today count. But we, if you're a Christ follower, if you know that uh, you're living for eternity, you don't seize the day with fear that there isn't a tomorrow. But you can seize it with a certainty that God can use whatever happens tomorrow. So we, carpe diem becomes an expression of faith, not fatalism. You know, and the writer of Ecclesiastes, he, he got part of this. He encourages us to make the most of life through enjoying eating and drinking and work. But it means that we don't have to strive for success, but that we do get to enjoy life as a gift. We can receive it. Uh, with gratitude. So we live for today, but we also live for eternity. We do everything for him and with him, trusting that he can breathe eternal value into what we're doing, even the smallest of tasks. So now, this very moment can become an intersection of time and eternity. And every moment can be like that, an intersection of the now and for eternity. You know, we want to seize every opportunity for Jesus. We want to seize every opportunity to speak about him and share about him. But at the same time, we hold the present lightly. 
we're willing to give up what might be appealing today for or make sacrifices because we're investing in what is eternal. So Jesus speaks these words in Matthew 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is what we have an opportunity to live out through gift day. So gift day is a chance for us all to say, okay, this money I could enjoy today, I'm going to invest it for eternity. And I'd encourage you to pray and ask God uh, for what is good for you to give, as Gavin encouraged at the beginning. So we want to live for the present and live for eternity. Secondly, we want to embrace the seasons. There are tough seasons of life. There are seasons where we can celebrate. And God's promise in Romans is that he can work all things. He can work all seasons for our good, which is obviously so much easier said than done. But we start by speaking it. We start by choosing to believe it in our hearts. And then we ask Holy Spirit empowerment to live it out. Sophie and I have both been through seasons of grief and mourning where we've lost loved ones. And often in those times we've caught glimpses of God's character that we never knew before. That he's shown us his comfort, his care, his kindness. Um, through these seasons and it's a tough season it's a bittersweet season but we've seen something of God that we haven't known before it feels easier to embrace the seasons of celebration than of, than of hardship but God can bring good through all and thirdly we live in the now and the not yet you know, when we've got promises of our faith, this book, the Bible, is full of promises of God's goodness, but our daily experience of reality can often feel like it contradicts, and that can sometimes leave us uh, being tempted to deny God. Well, we kind of, you heard the, the writer in Ecclesiastes wrestling with these things too, and he brings them both together, saying, you know, today can be tough and we can be in confusing seasons, but God can still th make all things beautiful in his time. So how can we respond? How can we live in the now and the not yet? Well, firstly, we pray. Jesus, when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, which maybe you learned a long time ago, maybe you don't know, but there's one line where Jesus invites us to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants us to kind of pray eternity into the now. And we have patience. James 5.7 says, be patient. And then it goes on to illustrate how, like a farmer. Now, I don't know much about farming, but the ones I've met are usually very hard workers. And James's point is that, you know, farmers have to wait. They have to wait for the weather. They have to wait for the seasons. They have to wait for things to grow, but it's such an active waiting. They're weeding, they're tending, they're monitoring, they're looking, but they're waiting. And our patience is to be an active trust in God's timing, that he can make all things beautiful in his time. So prayer and patience together should keep us going in the waiting. You know, when, when things aren't going as we think they ought to, 
You've heard me say it before, but, and I'm sure you've experienced it, times where you've wanted to force God's timing, where you've wanted to force his hand. You know, we, uh, we, when we, to get here to Amsterdam, we left Johannesburg, and we had to book five tickets. It was when all these lockdowns had just begun. And uh, five tickets, and at every point we were kind of saying, God, what, what, what is going on? Are we not in your will? Uh, is this not the door you're opening for us now? What do we do? Uh, and, and we kept feeling it was right to rebook and rebook and rebook. And then after five tickets, uh, you know, we made our way here. But it was in his timing. It was a stressful and confusing period. But, you know, we're now here one year and two weeks today. So we can trust his timing for all things. So Dan spoke about how Jesus bridges a gap between time and eternity. He also bridges a gap between our limited control and his ultimate control. Jesus demonstrates what a life in harmony with God in control looks like. In life, he, const- he prayed constantly and obeyed his Father. Before his death, he prayed, not my will, but yours. So how does Jesus redeem our want for control? He wants to help us both with the things that cause us anxiety because we know they're completely beyond our control, but also with the things that we do feel we have some control over. He's our Prince of Peace, and we can believe by believing that he's ultimately in control and that he is good and really has our best interests at heart, we can embrace that sense of certainty. This is an amazing message of hope. The world is not out of control. He rules over history and over time. He is just and he will bring justice in his time. He also invites us to partner with him. Jesus invites us to line up our limited control with his unlimited control. Jesus doesn't impose his control on us. He wins our hearts. He asks us to trust him and to choose him completely. He's so for us. He wants us to partner with him, like when we invite children to help us with a task. It's an invitation to enjoy life with him. This means choosing to lay down the illusion that with enough resources and enough determination, we can create a mini world in which we are sovereign. Our response is rather to partner with him in his creation mandate, to restore and renew the world, not for our own agenda, but for his. So our submission to him is joyful and comes from a place of truth and freedom. So how, what does that mean for how we live? Because we live joyfully choosing to contribute our limited control to his overall control, we can live with fear, uh, we can, sorry, we can live with faith rather than fear. Um, and because it's Mother's Day, I just wanted to think, how does that apply to our relationships and to our parenting? And firstly, again, just that deep certainty that he cares for us like a mother cares for a child. And that's our starting point. Um, And just another application, I think many of us in this room and um, who are listening have experienced decisions about relocations in different ways, sometimes with families. And by faith, sometimes we take up opportunities, and by faith, sometimes we lay opportunities down. But always we want to choose faith rather than fear. Even sometimes good things, we lay them down, and his timing, he takes them up. These decisions around, I mean, often they're massive, around relocation can lead to fear and definitely a sense of being out of control. And for some, exercising faith has meant trusting God for parents or other family members who are left behind. 
especially in corona. Bringing kids to a new situation um, can bring a lot of fear for them. Uh, how will it affect their schooling? Will they be bullied? Will they be at a disadvantage? Will they make good friends? Um, all these things can cause us fear. But it's wonderful to hear that when we do make decisions in faith and we step into them, often we just hear such wonderful stories of God's faithfulness, often in kids' lives. You know, the ones that we want to protect, we see that God is working in their lives. But like Dan said, sometimes we hold on to his promises even when they do find it hard. When those fears, we see them playing out, we trust um, that we're certain that God loves our kids more than we ever can. And we're certain that Jesus is sovereign over their lives too. Lastly, we want to win hearts like Jesus does with us. We want to imitate Jesus in that. So in our friendships, in our work relationships, in our marriages and in our parenting, we want to win hearts. Um, and uh, one day I was cycling um, near here uh, and running through my mind I had all the things I wanted to get done I had a few hours um, available and I had a long list of things I wanted to get done and suddenly I felt guilty as I thought I hadn't even thought to include God into any of the things that I wanted to get done and I could feel myself bracing myself for his disapproval and a harsh rebuke um, but instantly I felt a gentle rebuke saying give me every part of your day partner with an invitation to partner with him in it and it just turned everything around suddenly I felt loved and excited to see how God could not just help me tick things off um, but give them meaning and make them worthwhile and that's just some, a little picture of how he wins our hearts and with parenting it can be frustrating to realise that we really can't control our kids um, it's close to impossible, at least in my experience, um, to keep the jokes appropriate, um, to make their handwriting legible, or to have matching pairs of socks. And um, it's often much easier, especially when we're tired or if there's guests around, to rather go for compliance and just kind of managing behavior and forcing them um, to do what we want with threats or bribes. Um, but I think my journey has been as I've received Jesus' gentleness to me, I've slowly, with lots of mistakes, but growing in my ability to win their hearts. Um, and I think that goes into other relationships as well. So eventually they gladly choose to do what we ask, and even more importantly, what God asks of them. We also trust in God's grace when we don't see the change in them that we'd like, um, that he's able to work in their hearts as he does in ours. A conclusion now that that Jesus wants to win our hearts that he doesn't want our compliance he wants obedience but he wants he's doing it through winning our hearts first and foremost he, he kind of he wants to persuade us and this is the choice between this is the choice before each one of us today that Jesus wants to win your heart and maybe this is possibly your first time considering this but maybe you've given your heart to Jesus before and, and I want you to hear that he's asking for more of it because actually we need to kind of daily give him our hearts that we've got so many daily opportunities to choose to trust God or not trust God with his timing uh, and with his sovereignty and control and our encouragement I'm hoping that you'll walk away with this is that we get a choice to partner with Jesus to trust him today and into eternity. Can I pray for us? 
Yeah, Jesus, we're so grateful that you stepped into time. We're so grateful that uh, you want to win our hearts. We recognize that you have ultimate control. We're grateful for the control you give us, and we want to choose to submit our control to you. We want to follow you, the trustworthy, all-powerful God. We thank you that you're good. If you weren't good, then we couldn't trust you. And if you weren't powerful, you wouldn't be worth trusting. But we're so grateful that you're the one who holds the future. We don't know what it looks like. But thank you that we can trust you. We can partner with you. And I want to pray that uh, for everyone in the room and everyone watching uh, this morning, that they would be able to take deeper steps of trust in you. Amen. Amen.